Welcome to an episode about one of the biggest Achilles heels in the nonprofit sector, program evaluation. We're not good at it. We think it's too hard. We don't know how to do it. And our boards don't hold us accountable to figure it out. Oh, yes, and funders want to know all about it. Let's say you're an organization that advocates for a cure for an illness, and it's been years now and still no cure. Hmm. Or how about an army of choirs that sings at the bedside of the dying? How incredible that work is. I get goosebumps thinking about my friends at Threshold Choirs. But do we measure success by the number of bedsides? I actually don't know. When I ran GLAAD, we met with producers and journalists advocating that they tell the stories of LGBT lives, that they include LGBT characters. But it was the gifted and generous Max Muchnick who brought Will and Grace to life, not GLAAD. We struggled all the time with the question, how do we evaluate the success of the work we do? It's time to get over it. We all know the questions. How do you measure difficult things? How do you build buy-in for evaluation with your team? How to contend with the anxiety? Uh Uh-oh, what if we measure and the results aren't good? How do you figure out how to measure the things that really matter? And of course, then there's always the question, where am I supposed to find the time to do all of this? You want me to do the work and take time to measure it? Oi. Today's guest has tackled these questions and has terrific answers and advice. And we are kindred spirits because it is these metrics that tell the most compelling stories about your organization. The stuff great stories are made of, the stories that are central to inviting people to know and do more for your organization. Stay with us and you will learn that it is not as hard as you think and that this work doesn't have to take a lot of time or cost a lot of money. So program evaluation is not my area of expertise. So like I do often on my podcast, I go out and I find the person. In this case, the woman who wrote the book on it. Like literally, the book. So get ready to take notes. Greetings and welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. I'm your host, Joan Gary, founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, where we help smaller nonprofits thrive. I'm also a strategic advisor for executive directors and boards of larger nonprofits. I'm a frequent keynote speaker, a blogger, and an author on all things leadership and management. Learn more at JoanGary.com. I'm a woman with a mission to fuel the leadership of the nonprofit sector. My goal with each episode is to dig deep into an issue I know that nonprofit leaders are grappling with by finding just the right person to offer you advice and insights. Today is no exception. Shari Smith believes evaluation should be accessible, practical, and usable. She founded Evaluation into Action located in Portland, Oregon, to help nonprofit professionals create realistic and meaningful program evaluation processes. She has taught several workshops helping nonprofit professionals understand the value and the use of program evaluation. Recently, she was the opening keynote speaker at the American Evaluation Association Conference. Her book, Nonprofit Program Evaluation Made Simple, Get Your Data, Show Your Impact, Improve Your Programs, provides step-by-step instruction on how to do program evaluation well. Shari, it's really nice to have you with us. Oh, it's an honor to be here, Joan. Thank you. So I wonder if you would share with your listeners how you found your way to an expertise in this particular field. Yeah, it's an interesting story. Um, I'll start with, I have my undergraduate degree in psychology, which really helps with understanding human behavior. Mm -hmm. And then I got my master's in marketing and I got deep into market research, which allowed me to develop the technical expertise of creating quality surveys and conducting focus groups and so on. When I moved to Portland, Oregon in 2001, I landed a job at Education Northwest as a program evaluation associate. And I absolutely fell in love with the field. I was surrounded by people who did program evaluation from different approaches, different perspectives, and I was an absolute sponge and took it all in. It was an exciting time. So I really just fell into the field and fell in love with it. What do you love about it, Shari? I love the aha moments that people get. I love that when someone is gathering the data and they think it's going to be a boring, arduous, burdensome process. And then I work with them and they go, 
this is really helpful. Like I can almost <laughs> see the light bulb over their head. Or, or they have those, you know, those moments of like, oh, now I know what to do because the data are telling me what's working and what's not working. And I no longer have to guess. This is fantastic. And, you know, I've even been uh, accused of being, of making it really fun <laughs> because <laughs> I really do think it's fun. I think it's exciting. And that's what got me in love with it is people have a way to steer their ship. They don't have to guess anymore. It's uh, it's funny that you say that, Shari, because I... Um, I don't do it as much anymore, but I used to do quite a lot of strategy work. And the notion that people would find strategy work to be arduous, onerous, um, that it was just like something else you had to do. Like I couldn't, I didn't get that. To me, building a strategy for the future is just ridiculously exciting and it should be really fun and it should be stimulating. And somehow or another, we tend to su- kind of suck the life out of kind of the good stuff in the nonprofit sector. And, and it's, a, um, it's, a, it's an interesting thing. I think we just get so hell bent on just doing the work. That's right. I agree with that. But I also agree strategic planning as well as program evaluation work, very energizing. And I see it. I see a room light up when we get through an evaluation planning session and people start to see the possibilities. So let's hope that we are not alien beings or just geeks. And let's let's instead <laughs> imagine, <laughs> yeah, let's instead imagine that we are um, evangelists for this kind of work. Absolutely. Um, now, so speaking of evangelizing, your new book is really terrific. It's called Non-Pro- Nonprofit Program Evaluation Made Simple. Get your data, show your impact, improve your programs. What prompted you to write, as somebody who's written a book, I always want to know what it is that prompted somebody to write a book? Well, you know, I hadn't intended to write a book, to be totally honest with you. I present a lot at conferences. I do sessions on program evaluation. And oftentimes after those sessions, I'm approached and someone says, do you have a book? And the answer has always been, no, I don't have a book. I always felt, you know, I can't write a book. I don't have the time. And, you know, all of the all of the different things that come up in the head. I'm sure you're familiar with too, right? It's, yep. it's a pretty intense process. But then in the fall of 2017, I had just finished a session on building a culture of evaluation and I was approached again. Do you have a book? And this little voice inside me said, write the book. (laughs) And so I said, I said, no, but maybe I will. And so I just started to let loose and uh, writing that book took a long time and a lot of effort to say the least, but I'm really excited that it's out there because I think it provides a way for the non-evaluator to access program evaluation because there are so many different ways to do it. It can be overwhelming to know how to start. And that's a big motivator of why I wrote the book. I also think too, and and um, I have now out a second edition of my own book, is that people are really have really hungry for, especially in 2021, as we hopefully see the light at the end of a pandemic tunnel, the notion of getting things right, getting back to fundamentals, right? That the nonprofits that that struggled the mightiest, right, had some had some fundamental challenges that getting back to basics will help with. And I think that that, that is so true of program evaluation. So I think that the timeliness of your book is really, really, um, it's just really spot on. Thank you. I appreciate that. So let's talk about what gets in the way of people doing this work? What are the the staff obstacles? I've heard you use the word fear. I've heard you use the word resistance. You know, it's more than simply just, I don't have time, isn't it? And I, so I'd love to hear what you, tell us what you see and why you think that there are these sort of emotionally laden words associated with it rather than it's just not high enough on my list. I, I agree. And I hear that a lot even today. I think, I think it's critical to address why people get stuck and they don't really have the interest or they don't value program evaluation. I think they have trouble getting traction 
on doing program evaluation because of these underlying emotional issues that hold them back from moving forward. And when you say staff obstacles, for me, it's if we don't have everybody on the program evaluation train before it leaves the station, it, they may not be successful in then implementing it and getting the data that they need, right? So it's really important to dig in if you do have a culture of compliance, is what I would call that, um, a culture of compliance where people feel mandated to gather the data because funders are requiring it. And to be honest, Joan, it can also really stem from past bad experiences. Like I said earlier, there are lots of ways to do program evaluation. And in the past, not as much so today, but in the past, there are approaches that are more judgmental, more punitive, um, not as collaborative. And I think that can really impact people's willingness to get on that program evaluation train. So I want to talk about the fear. Please. This is, this is really important, right? I think underneath it all is their fear of losing their job, of finding out their program isn't working as it's supposed to be. Fear of losing funding. There's a lot of fear that I think can come up for people when they say, oh, I don't have time. <laughs> I think some of it is, I'm afraid. I'm afraid we're going to learn that we're not making the difference we think that we're making, right? So that fear, what I invite people to do, instead of running from it, run to it. Get curious. Try to understand if you found something is not working as you had planned to, write an improvement plan, right? Change what you're doing. Because at the end of the day, don't we all want to be making the difference we intend to be making? And program evaluation is the way to do that. So when people can get vulnerable, right? To quote Brene Brown, who I adore. Um, when they get vulnerable, they get courageous, they get curious. Why isn't this working? Fear can't also exist in this space. It cannot coexist. So when people get curious of why something's not working and open to the possibility of what needs to be changed and measuring again, uh, that can make a real difference in the culture of the organization. And I will say, I think my experience has been when an organization is that transparent to share something that's not working alongside of, and here's how we're going to change and measure again, then that funder appreciates the honesty and transparency. That's been my experience. Don't hold me to it. <laughs> but that's been my experience of what I've seen is, but really don't we want to make sure we're fulfilling our missions? Right? So here's a question for you. <clears throat> Doesn't a lot of this... Um, and again, obviously, we're talking today. We're talking to nonprofit leaders, board, and staff. Right? Doesn't a lot of it come from the top? And what kind of message the executive director sends about the sort of why of this, why it matters? Yes. Right? Is is if I live in my own world and I say, "Oh my gosh, if we do this, we find out the program's not working," uh, you know, that will reflect poorly on me, um, mm -hmm. or if the executive director says, you know, I know you really don't want to do this, but we have to because the XYZ Foundation says we have to do it as part of our, you know, our grant report, as opposed right. to we all should be caring about doing the very best work we can do. And we need to learn and understand what's working what could be working better about our programs? Those are very different frames. And one of them evokes fear. One of them evokes obligation. And the other one says, hey, we're all in this together. Let's actually try to, let's, let's see how we're doing. How we doing? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think you hit that, you know, that example is a perfect example of that spectrum from having a culture of compliance to a culture of learning. So when you're mandated, you feel you have to do it for the grant reports, like you said, then everybody kind of falls in line with like, oh, grunt, I don't want to do this, but we have to do it, right? And it's driven by why 
by what the funder is requiring of them, right? right? Here's the data that we want to see. Not what, it's not coming from the nonprofit. It's coming from the funder, right? As opposed to if they're a culture of learning, they want to do it. They want to learn. They want to understand what's working and what's not working. And when you come from that place, when you put yourself as a nonprofit in the driver's seat and create an evaluation plan where you already have solidified what data you're going to collect, you share that with the funder and they're like, oh, right, this is great. Now, again, I can't guarantee this for all funders, but my experience has been a funder is very happy to see an evaluation plan in place and great. Why don't you run with that? So by really being a culture of learning, nonprofits have the opportunity to put themselves in the driver's seat of what kinds of data they are going to collect to benefit their organization so their organization can thrive. So the solution, the way they shift is looking at what is realistic to collect and creating that plan collaboratively. You'll hear me say collaborate a lot because I'm a big believer in, and I know you are too, Joan, right? We have to collaborate, right? right? When I work with a new client, I talk about how I'm the evaluation guide and you're the content experts. I bring the evaluation expertise, but I'm not an expert in what you do. So we're going to collaborate to make sure we are creating an evaluation plan that is realistic for your organization. So I I want to talk about the board as a collaborator as well, but I'm going to park that because I want to get to the, a little bit of the meat of this and we'll come back to boards. Um, So I think your mission and my job with this podcast is to make this kind of work feel smaller and less onerous. So why don't we dig in a little bit? And I suppose we start with making sure we're measuring something meaningful, right? So there are lots of things you can measure. Do you want to help our listeners figure out the answer to the question, what matters? Absolutely. First and foremost, measure what matters right? Only gather data that you will truly use. And this is so common. Um, I get into organizations, some organizations that say have an intake form, and they've been using that same intake form for 20 or 30 years, just (laughs) asking the same questions, you know, managing those data. But then I start with, well, let's go through that intake form and think about it this way. Are you using this particular question, the responses for program planning? Are you using it to support development efforts? Are you using it at all? Or are you just gathering those data because you think you should? You know, it's a, well, we've always asked this, so we're just going to ask this. But why? Why are you taking the time from the people participating in your program if you're not going to use it? So for those listeners, I invite you to go through your current data collection tools, right? Particularly intake forms, registration forms, and go through it with the lens of, Is anyone in our organization using the responses from this particular question? And if not, stop asking it. (laughs) The second thing that's a little bit more meaty to get into is defining success. This is so common, Joan, it's so common when people say, you know, we we should do a survey, but we don't know what to ask. Mm -hmm. And I say, well, what do you expect to have change? How are you defining success? And I think this is what stops people from doing program evaluation. They get stumped on, well, how do we define success? What do we, what do we even know what to ask? And I go into a lot of detail on this in my book because I think it's so important for organizations to have the skills to understand how to define success for their own programs, right? So I talk a lot about creating measurable outcomes collaboratively. So I ask my clients to identify who should be at the table. Anybody using, gathering, analyzing, reporting the data should be at the table for that evaluation planning process. They should be a part of creating those measurable outcomes. So what's put into a grant report by the grant writer, also they can write that with confidence knowing program staff are gathering data around that particular outcome, right? There's no scramble at 2 a.m. of, oh my goodness, what are we going to tell the funder? Right. So I want to give you an example. I worked with the Candlelighters for Children with Cancer, and they offer an incredible family camp for families that are experiencing pediatric cancer. Okay. When I first met with them, staff talked to me a lot about how the family camp lessened isolation and depression. 
Mm -hmm. It created an emotional support network and it facilitated much needed social connection for families going through this incredibly difficult time. But on paper, everything that I read, the camp was described in lessening isolation, but also highlighted were some traditional camp activities like eating snow cones and swimming and so on. And I thought, let's get this into alignment because I'm hearing people tell these incredible stories of the impact the program is making. But what's written down and what they've been reporting out is more around families get to have some relief by going swimming and eating snow cones. Yep. So collaboratively, we sat down and talked about what change, like let's translate the conversation of lessening depression and isolation. And then what? What changes? And we landed on three outcomes. The first is to expand social connections with other families experiencing pediatric cancer. The second is to establish an emotional coping framework. And the third is to increase knowledge about how to navigate the medical process and financial resources. So that's how we defined success. None of those have anything to do with snow cones, do they? They don't have to do with snow cones. That's right. Or swimming. And it was, you know, talk about getting excited, right? The room lit up. Like everyone was excited. We have language now. We have a narrative. Here's what we expect to have change. Here's how we define success. And then that provided the foundation from which all of the survey questions stemmed. We wanted to understand to what degree progress was made in those three areas. So when people are like, what matters? What should we matter? I think that just having that conversation collaboratively, brainstorming at the end of the day, what do we expect to have change? And then measure that. In the, in the, in the, in the example you use, did you do a pre and a post survey? Is that what you did in order to gauge the, the differences? I'm just sort of interested. I know where I I, I wanted to go to the how a little bit later, but I, I, my curiosity is getting me. (laughs) Well, I appreciate that. You know, we didn't do a pre and a post. It was a three day family camp. Okay. Right. So they wanted to understand it was just a post survey that we did at the end of the family camp. We did one with the kids, Uh one with the teenagers and one with the parents. And here's a data point that a lot of people often miss. Then I had them do a guided staff reflection on what they observed on those three areas. So then we have four different data points to look at, right? What the children are saying, what the teenagers are saying, what the parents are saying, and what staff are saying. And by looking at data on those outcomes from all four data sources, it provides a really holistic picture of progress being made towards those outcomes. So you know what's interesting about this, Shari, is that so often you hear people say, well, I don't really have data. I have a lot of anecdotal information, right? I, 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 have, e- I have emails out the wazoo. I have all the, you know, the conversations I've had and, and it, they just give me goosebumps to think about it. And you're not actually talking about something that's radically different from that. You're actually just giving them, um, uh, my friend Dan, I think he calls them like, Hat hooks, like hooks to to hang those to hang those anecdotes on in a way that's structured and and clear for the world to see. Right? Yes. Is it that yes. anecdotes do matter and anecdotes are great, but they have to be corralled in some fashion. That's what I'm hearing you say. Yeah, you really hit the nail on the head there, Joan. Because stories are data, right? <laughs> stories are data. Numbers are data and having them both. So doing what's called a mixed method approach where you have quantitative and qualitative data combined tells a much, in my opinion, a much more holistic story of what is happening in making progress towards those outcomes. So it is a more structured way. So when you're gathering those stories or you're hearing those stories, when you do focus groups or if you do surveys or whatever it is you do, there's an opportunity for those stories to come to light underneath the structure of these outcomes. Yeah, uh, yeah, right? so smart, very smart, very smart. And there's alignment, there's alignment there. So whatever's in the outcome, right? And you're gathering data around that. And then when you report it out, you repeat the outcome and then you share the numbers and the stories that support progress towards that outcome. Love that. Um, so so uh, I'll throw another example out just for the heck of it. So let's say you have a, a, a senior center and... Some people would say, I measure success by 
we have a 20% increase in the number of people who are taking advantage of our programs at the Mm -hmm. senior center. Mm -hmm. Or we have a 20% increase in the number of people that are going to our website and on the pages of resources for transportation or continuing education. Um, and, and those things feel pretty straightforward to measure, but, um, but what did we learn about how those seniors changed or were, have benefited? We only, we only know about how many more of them there were. That's right. And I really appreciate you brought this up because historically people get confused by these two terms, outputs and outcomes, right? Yes. Outputs, bean counting. It's exactly what you just described. The number of people being served, the percentage of, you know, increase of the number of people participating, whatever it is, it's, it's literally what comes out of your program in terms of numbers as a result of what you're implementing. Okay. Outcomes, on the other hand, are change statements. So what I just read about the Candlelighters Family Camp, right? Those are change statements. And that requires more work, more collaboration to really sit down and define what we expect to have change. And so get ready to write this down, listeners. There are four (laughs) areas, okay? There's knowledge, skills, attitude, and behavior. Those are typically the four areas in which outcome statements will fall. And if you didn't get it all down, it's in detail in my book. I go into a lot of detail on this because I'm very passionate about people being able to create measurable outcome statements. So when you talk about the seniors, right, we have to then define, well, as a result of what we're doing, we still need to count the numbers. That's still important. But what do we expect to have change for these seniors as a result of what we are doing for them? What changes What improvements or increases or what are we expecting to see happen? And that's how we define impact or success and then measure that. So there are different kinds of organizations that do different kinds of things, right? There are, and I even spoke to that in the opening of this podcast, right? There are organizations that serve seniors. There There are folks that have food pantries. Then there are some that are more abstract, harder to get your arms around, like advocacy work. Um, So maybe some practical suggestions on the easy ones and maybe some practical suggestions on the more difficult ones. um, I actually think, yeah, I think I can address this, whether it's easy or difficult, like the spectrum, right? Okay. I invite people to get out their magic paintbrush and write together in a room, brainstorm out, If you could report anything on the impact your program has been having, what would you write? So you basically are reverse engineering, right? What would occur? You know, what would you like to be able to say? And so for the more difficult ones like advocacy, right? If you are writing up like we expect to change, you know what? I'm not going to even try to guess like advocacy. No, I'll (laughs) try. I'll I'll help you. So, uh, so, so, um, uh, I, as the executive director at GLAD, we were looking to change hearts and minds and public opinion about uh, LGBT people, right? Through the mechanism of advocating for more stories about LGBT lives being told in news and entertainment. Mm, okay. 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 And so there's lots of things that change hearts and minds about LGBT people, right? We know that the number one way is to know someone who is. And actually, Mm -hmm. we knew that the number two way through a Pew Research study was the media. But there's Mm -hmm. lots of factors. So I can't, if if the needle changes, I can't, I can't grab full credit for that. Right? No, you so, can't. so, and like I said in the beginning, I can't grab credit for the fact that Will and Grace is on television or that Ellen came out or that there's a transgender person on Big Sky. Like I can't. So the question is, how do you, how do you measure in that situation where I'm an advocacy organization and I know I'm doing really important work? Um, how do I measure that? So, okay, just off the cuff without going too deep, deep into creating outcomes right. and all of that, right? Please. But, but one thing would be is if you're defining success as there being more stories in the news, one thing I tell people, and you, and you said this so well, of you can't take full credit. Right. right? So one, one way to get around that is to do a survey or a poll or something. Did 
participating in the GLAD program, contribute to. Uh So by saying contribute to, you're not taking full credit. You are asking if it contributed to their perceptions. And so then you are able to then list all of the different things of what it is you're hoping their perceptions will change by asking and breaking it down in that way of, you know, did we play a part in this or did we not play a part in this? Yeah. Right. I mean, so one of the one, other... Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Keep going, Shari. No, no, that's all I was going to say. That's that's one way to address that. So one of the things that one funder said to me once was, you will never be able to influence the media if you don't have access to the people who are deciders. Mm-hmm. And so what he said to me was, I would like to know, you know, a list of the people you had access to in the year 2001. What meetings did you have? Who thought GLAD was credible enough that they that a senior person at Paramount Television would meet with you to hear about? How many um, editorial board meetings did you have during the course of a particular year where you did a scorecard on their coverage of LGBT issues? Like, like he saw that as you can't have influence if you don't have access. So so that was another interesting way of thinking about it. Well, then I think that is a a beautiful way to say one of the outcomes could have been to increase access to the decision makers in media, right? Perfect. And then you list out, you know, you, you are tracking your activities, all those different editorial. So you're tracking activities so you could report out those outputs right? So you report, so those are direct. Those meetings are, you did those meetings, you take full credit for those meetings, right? Correct. But then it's kind of these layers, right? So these building blocks, if you will. So here are the activities, here's the outcome of increasing access, here's the outputs, number of meetings we had, and an outcome that you measure could be doing a survey or a poll or focus groups with a sample of the people of trying to understand, did the work that you are you contributing to their perceptions? Did their perceptions change? First question, right? And listing out specifically what changed. And then did the work or any programs that they contributed to with GLAD, did that contribute to their perception? Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Uh, And some of it was, you know, you'd have a meeting with the people, Mark Burnett Productions that that launched um, Survivor. And mm-hmm. you'd sit and you'd chat with them, and it probably had not crossed their minds that that making uh, uh, sorry casting one of the castaways as a gay person actually had an impact, right? And mm-hmm. you, as you sat and talked and said, you know, this here's why this could be meaningful, and this is how it could add value to the show that you're producing, right? Mm -hmm. And that, you know, I can't take credit for the fact that the, you know, the first season of Survivor had a gay castaway, nor can I take credit for the fact that he won, nor can I take the blame (laughs) for the fact that he went to jail for tax fraud. (laughs) My goodness, no, you can't. But what I'm hearing is this, you know, process of access and then building awareness. Yep. Right. So then they, there could have been an opportunity to survey all of those decision makers. Yep. Good. I, right? Very good. Very good. So yep. we're having a conversation about program evaluation with Shari Smith. Uh, Shari uh, believes that evaluation should be accessible, practical and usable. She's located out of Portland, Oregon, and she founded Evaluation Into Action, which actually is a website, evaluationintoaction.com. Com. And she helps nonprofit professionals create realistic, meaningful program evaluation processes and is the author of the book, Nonprofit Program Evaluation Made Simple. Get your data, show your impact, and improve your programs. Um, so um, what about this sort of, I want to stay with this for one more second. You talk about co- collaboration. Um, there's also coalitions, Mm-hmm. And I just want to talk about that for just a second. Sure. Um, situations in which you are in coalition with a number of organizations pushing forward a particular outcome. Mm-hmm. 
Um, advice for folks who live in that space, and I and I think that more and more funders would like to see more and more coalition work, as mm-hmm. opposed mm-hmm. to siloed organizations that say this is these are my toys and those are your toys, and no, you Absolutely. can't no you can't borrow my dump truck, and no I'm not sharing my shovel, <laughs> right? Is, right. What's program right. evaluation look like when you're working in coalition? Well, I think it's the same process, Joan. I think they have to collaboratively come up with what are they trying to change? What are the key? And I I typically suggest anywhere from three to six outcomes. More than that becomes more difficult to measure, more time consuming. And I like to be very resource efficient. So I think in that case, when you have multiple people involved, you need to get everybody in the room and have those conversations and have agreement on what are we trying to change across all of our organizations? What do we roll up to? What are the key three to six outcome statements that we can agree on? And how are we going to then measure, right? What kinds of data do we then need to collect? Are we going to do focus group surveys, obviously tracking activities? What do we need to be doing to measure to what degree those outcomes have been achieved? And revisit the data regularly, right? So it's not just like a, let's do it at the end of five years. No, no, no. Do it on an ongoing basis, have regular check-ins. And I also think if you're part of a coalition, as well as an organization, having regular reflections on the data you've gathered, right? So it's not just this busyness of like a flurry of gathering the data and getting a report out and keep moving, right? No, take a breath, really look at the data that you've gathered, talk about how you're going to use those data to inform your work, and then move forward from there, right? Well, the other thing is, as you gather this data, you may actually, (laughs) I was talking to a client yesterday, Um, And it wasn't data, it was emails that uh, he was receiving from clients. And he said they're just absolute fundraising gold. And so reviewing the the data as you go along, um, A, first of all, you can actually be nimble about changes you can make potentially. But also, you, you, you might actually have fundraising gold hidden amidst that data that you can just start using right away. Absolutely. I have a wonderful story to share with you about that. I worked with the Portland Homeless Family Solutions. Yeah, okay. love to hear that. Yeah. So I worked with them in 2013 to help them set up a program evaluation system for their shelter program. Okay. They have many programs, but we started with the shelter program so that they can then scale it out. Okay. So we looked at that. And when I first met with them, they were mostly tracking just numbers, just outputs, right? How many people were served, how many classes they offered, that kind of thing. So we got really into it and developed outcomes for all of the incredible services they were offering. They were doing wraparound case management, life skill classes. They just had a range of supportive services they offered, but they really weren't focused on gathering data around those services, right? So we set up a system so they were gathering data on a regular basis they're definitely a culture of learning. You know, they're one of the organizations that I talk about in my book a lot because they're such a great example of program evaluation success, right? For me, I define success as if my clients are using the data. That's it. That's what yeah. I want them to do, right? So I met with Brandy Tuck, the executive director, back in 2019 in preparation for the book that I wrote. I wanted to have a better understanding of what was she doing with the data? How is the system working? And I asked her, so how has it been in terms of fundraising? You know, how has that worked? And I'm going to read this to you because it really, my jaw like dropped to the floor when she told me this. She said, because of having this program evaluation system in place, our annual fundraising from foundations increased by 677%. (laughs) <laughs> and annual fundraising from individual donors increased by 753%. I'm telling you, my jaw dropped and I nearly fell off <laughs> the seat. Now, I will say program evaluation is not a marketing activity. It's not a PR activity. It's not a fundraising activity. At its core, it's intended to learn, right? It's a learning right. activity. But when you are learning, when you discover you know, these wonderful stories or the numbers and you can articulate the impact your program is making, then that is where that fundraising gold comes in. So I believe it supports fundraising, but it's not a fundraising activity. Um, 
So I'll go back to your camp story for a second, Shari. Sure. As someone who might be a donor to that camp, let's say, um, I'm not particularly compelled by camp activities. Like I get the idea that for those kids, having that respite, having that opportunity to be a kid, you know, to sort of pretend that you do not pretend, but to sort of just, just be away. And, and, and the, the snow cones and the activities, I would get that. But the thing that would give me goosebumps were the outcomes that were developed that, that I understand that when I make an investment in that camp, it's not just about those three days. Like it can't be. If you want to score a multi-year gift from me, if I run a foundation, for I need more than the three days. Because after three days, those kids are going to go home. And right, and they're and they're going to have all the same challenges, and they're going to remember fondly their three days. But if you haven't created a long tail from those three days, you're much less likely to, you know, you're more likely to get a a, a gift from me with two zeros rather than four zeros or five zeros. So mm-hmm. I agree right. with you; it's not a fundraising a- effort. It is a, but but at its heart, it is fine tuning your real story. And it is Absolutely. the the more finely tuned and compelling your real story is, the more likely your revenue is going to generate is going to increase by seven thousand and thirty three percent, like um like the <laughs> the, the, <laughs> the organization you just described. Um, I want to move on and talk a little bit about surveys. Okay, so I know that um uh, so for listeners. Um, first, I should tell you that on May 13th, Shari has a workshop that I think you will find really helpful. It's called Survey Design Made Simple. And um, the link to register is both in my show notes uh, here on my page, as well as on the homepage of Shari's website, which is evaluationintoaction.com. And it's Thursday, May 13th from 9 to 10. It's only 29 bucks. And I, I now understand that you get you get a little discount if you uh, uh, enter the promo code Joan. Uh, That's right. That's right. Excited uh, to do that. uh, So thank you for that. Um, Of course. I don't I don't don't want you to do that webinar right now, but a couple of good pieces of advice for listeners about surveys. Sure. So in the workshop, I'll be covering in more detail how you how do you decide what to ask and how do you ask it? And over the years, I've had more and more clients come to me more for in coaching capacity, right? Like, can you just we have the survey. Can you review it? And more often than not, I find some really common errors that are just such an easy fix. One of which is asking a leading question. Mm. So a leading question is, do you like listening to this blog? Yes. Or this, or this podcast, excuse me. Let me take that again. Okay. Do you like listening to this podcast? Yes or no? That's a leading question because within the question, I'm leading you to say yes whether if you're conscious or unconscious about it or not, right? Okay. So the way to correct that is, how do you feel about listening to this podcast? And then it's excellent. It's okay. I don't like it. You know, like the range. So that is an easy way to correct for leading questions. So this is a really like the basic mistakes that I see over and over again. I'm going to be addressing them in the survey design workshop so that people can move forward with confidence on how they're asking their survey questions and understanding what to ask. Terrific. So I'm so I'm a listener. I, I'm actually the host and the listener, and you sold me. So I really need to prioritize this for the coming year. And I'm doing I'm 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 thinking about my next 12, 12 month cycle budget. How do I think about budgeting as it relates to program evaluation? I appreciate that question because that's one of the most common questions I get you know, is what does it cost? So it's not a one size fit all. It's not the same cost for all organizations, Mm -hmm. right? Because every organization has a different size and budget. But I've dedicated an entire chapter in my book to this on resource planning that covers not just money, but also time and expertise. Like how do you plan for doing program evaluation? So typically a guideline is 10 to 15% of your program's operating budget is dedicated to program evaluation. Now, This can vary. 
depending Mm -hmm. on your program size and your data needs. It can even be 5%. It could be 20%. If you do more expensive methods like focus groups, it'll be more. If you do less expensive methods like surveys tend to be less expensive, it'll be less. But it doesn't mean you run out and hand over, you know, 15% of your program budget to an evaluator. It means you dedicate some FTE internally. So someone who is running the program evaluation process, that is supported in their FTE. So it can be done internally, it can be done externally, or a combination. The important part is to set aside funds so they are able to gather data on an ongoing basis and having the funding to back that process up. Fabulous. Um, So one last question. I think, so this is a leading comment. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, You know, you look at the you get a board source and you, you Google the top 10 basic responsibilities of a board. And one of them is to monitor program effectiveness. I Somehow or another, I think that when boards read these 10, somehow or then they often skip this one. Or they don't really think that it's, that they don't have maybe the expertise to know how to do that. Mm-hmm. And so now let's say... I have I have had a big glass of the Shari Smith Kool-Aid on this, and I'm going to put in 15% of my program budget for program evaluation. Mm-hmm. And I'm presenting my board's, uh, I'm presenting my budget to the board. So there's money in the budget for it. It's not a crazy enough amount. It's not crazy, but I know somebody's going to see it as nice, but not essential. And they're going to say something to me. Mm -hmm. And so I'd like to have listeners leave hearing you as if you were answering that question at the board meeting. So so I'm that pain in the neck board member. Right. (laughs) I don't I see it as a nice thing, but not as an essential thing. And I say, you know, I'd really like to hear more, Shari, about this line item in this budget for program evaluation. And um you know, the revenue number looks a little ambitious to me. And I was thinking we might take that down, which means we probably have to, you know, sort of shear the expenses a little. And this seems like a pretty obvious place for me. Um, Can you address that for me? Go. Sure. So I would answer that with, well, how do we know if we are making the difference we intend to make unless we're gathering data to support that? I mean, program evaluation is the answer to that question. We have to gather data to understand if we're making the difference we intend to make. So in terms of the board member responsibility on if we are being effective, I know if that's the right phrasing there, you'll have to, are we being effective? Right. And the only, the only way to know that is to have a formal way to gather data. And that's what program evaluation is all about. I will say, I think when people think it's nice or it's expendable, Often what I'll hear is, yeah, what we talked about earlier, we have lots of stories. Of course, we're making a difference. So we don't need a program evaluation system. But like we talked about earlier, you need a formal process so you can report with confidence if you are making the difference that you think that you're making. And if not, where can you do better? And if so, great, highlight that and share that, you know, like like Portland Homeless Family Solutions did. They were able to leverage the impact they were making. So I think that, and I think also coupling that with other organizations who have a culture of building a culture of evaluation and they are gathering data on a regular basis, they are, it, it ripples through the rest of the organization, right? They are able then to secure funding. They are able to make program planning decisions with confidence because they have data to look at. It ultimately streamlines processes so that they are being more efficient with their time. They're being more efficient with their money. And it allows them to tell their story like we've been talking about in a way that they haven't been able to before. So for the board member that is like, I'm not sold on this. It's like, well, what are, I would almost turn it back to them. Well, what are you not sold on? How would you define, what can you point to that we are doing right now as an organization that shows we are being effective? Right. So I would say a couple of other things. I would add of my own friendly amendments. Yes, please. Um, your job as board members is 
your your jobs as board members are to be the most effective ambassadors for this organization. And stories are good. The data to back it up, right, can make all the difference between a small gift and a very large gift. It can really help you to tell the story of the organization in a way that is so much more powerful than you can today. So make it about them. That's one place that I would go. The second place I would go is armed with a copy of Shari Smith's book. I would grab, (laughs) I'm serious. I, I I, I would grab an example, a case study. I might have them listen to this podcast, mm-hmm. right? So maybe they just don't know, right? So read a case study from Shari's book or a colleague who does some program evaluation work so they can see how much of a difference it makes or have mm-hmm. them listen to a podcast like this so that they can get up to speed, not on the sort of necessity of it, but it's actual fundamental value to your ability as an organization to truly thrive. That's right. Um, that's what program evaluation is the tool for. And um, and so grateful, Shari, to have you um, here providing an appetizer of <laughs> what you will find in, your, in her book, Nonprofit Program Evaluation Made Simple. Um, I've heard Shari talk numerous times on this topic. And one of the reasons I wanted her to come and be with us today is because I believe that that A, she's an evangelist for it. And uh, was that B? A, she's an evangelist for it. And B, <laughs> and, um, and B, she makes it seem so clear, so obvious, and just not even remotely onerous. So, um, Shari, thank you so much for being with me. Uh, John, thanks for having me. It's been an honor and a privilege. So I just want to also just make one more pitch for May 13th from 9 a.m. to 10 a.m. Pacific time. Um, Shari's got a, um, a webinar, a workshop called Survey Design Made Simple. And it could be a really nice thing for a number of staff members to do together, right? Remember what, what, what we listened to Shari talk about today was this notion of collaboration. And Shari also talks about in her book, getting staff input into what should be measured. And that this would be a good way to say, hey, if we're going to do this, we were going to make a survey. Maybe we do this workshop together and that helps us to co-create together the basic uh, for, you know sort of foundation for program evaluation so you can um, you can register for that workshop on uh, Shari's website at evalu- evaluationintoaction.com it's um, $29 well spent with a $4 discount if you enter the promo code Joan I wonder what that stands for I, um, I don't know <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's it for today I, um, I hope you took a lot of notes um, assuming you weren't on your elliptical machine. And um, thanks for joining us as always. Thank you for the work that you do. And for the, uh, thank you for the opportunity to share some insights with you on my podcast. Have a good day. Take care. Hey, thanks for spending time with me today. I hope you found the conversation valuable as you navigate the messy world of nonprofits. Check out all my other resources at joangary.com. Hope you find them helpful too. Lastly, Thanks for the work you do to repair the world in ways large and small. I'll see you next time.